My name is Nell Fuller, co-founder of Femex Columbia and your host of the Venturing Voices podcast. Venturing Voices provides a platform for women entrepreneurs to share their story about what made them the badass leader they are today. We are excited to share what motivates and drives these women to get shit done in their everyday lives. Our first guest is a name that many women in South Carolina may be familiar with, Adair Ford Burroughs, a notable lawyer who has made quite an impact throughout our state already. Most publicly known for her run for Congress in 2020, which helped inspire a lot of women throughout the state, she began her law career in D.C. at the Department of Justice and focused on tax shelters, which we will discuss in a few minutes. She helped launch Charleston Legal Access with Sally Newman, offering sliding-scale legal services, a first of its kind here in South Carolina. She recently launched her law firm, Burroughs Bryant, which hopes to continue expanding access to legal services throughout the state. Recording from the Femex co-work space in Columbia, South Carolina, this is Venturing Voices. Diving right in, um, tell us a little bit about where you grew up, how you decided to go into law. Yeah, so I grew up um, in a very rural part of the state in Barnwell County in a tiny town um, called Williston and grew up in a double-wide trailer, very rural. And I didn't have um, thoughts then of anything that I would do in my adult life. I applied to two colleges, and that was it, um, Furman and Clemson. I really wanted to go to Furman. And um, after Furman was a math teacher, and that's what I thought I would be when I was a kid. I wanted to be a teacher like my mom and my grandma. But when I was in college, that's when really the world opened up for me, and I saw what was possible and started dreaming bigger. And the law really came out of frustration. As a, as a young teacher, I... Uh, spoke to my representatives at the state house and representatives on the school board. I had lots of things that I thought we should do differently in public education as a teacher. And I was handily and thoroughly dismissed. Um, and it was very, very frustrating for me. And I had a great conversation with Inez Tannenbaum, who at the time that I was teaching, she had, she had been the state superintendent of education, um, and she was running for the U.S. Senate at the time that I was teaching, and I volunteered on her campaign. And she told me, you know, I was planning to get a graduate degree in education, and she said, I have one of those, but I'll tell you what really gives me credibility talking to all these men in Columbia for what signals to them, hey, she might actually have a brain and be smart and know what she's thinking, was the law degree. And okay. so that's how I got interested in law, is um, not the best reason to go to law school, but I really wanted that level of credibility um, to, to make my voice heard, frankly. I, I love when people go to law school for the right reasons or for, for reasons that are bigger than themselves, um, I think is, is what is really exciting and what we need more of. Um, you know, you're not going to law school, so you can be a lawyer and make lots of money. You're going to law school to give a voice, you know, a female voice to the legal community to speak for issues in the community where you grew up and in education and social justice and right out of law school. Um, where did you find yourself? Did you gravitate more towards social justice or policy? Yeah, and I, I had always assumed or thought that I would still do education policy after law school. And so I did a lot of work in law school on that type of thing. Um, Mayor Newsom 
now governor, who was mayor of San Francisco at the time. I worked on his transitional youth task force, was his head education researcher. Um, so I did a lot with that, some work cross, across with the School of Education. But what happened in law school, as has been kind of the story of my life, is I find something else that I'm morally indignant about and, like, <laughs> swerve. Um, and in law school, for me, that was tax shelters. I want to stop and explain what a tax shelter is, because they are interesting, but also a huge problem that the United States faces. Tax shelters are when an individual or an organization attempts to minimize or decrease their taxable incomes, and therefore their tax liabilities. Oftentimes, the person being accused of this would make the paper trail of a transaction purposefully complex to get around paying the proper amount of tax. She was inspired by a professor while pursuing a master's degree at Stanford. Doing this job, she was sometimes working on multi-million dollar cases in an environment with a lot of people who did not look like her. He was really out there raising the alarm about these huge um, corporate individual tax shelters, and people weren't paying attention to him. Uh, the Department of Justice were losing those cases at the trial level. And a lot of that, uh, my view at the time, which I think is, is still probably correct at the time, it was these transactions were purposely complex to obfuscate what was really going on. Right. And they need you needed someone who could come in and explain to a judge or jury, this is all fake. Right. <laughs> and this is what's going on. And and I said, you know, I can do that. I was a math major in undergrad and I like breaking it down. I was like, this is something I can do. And, and it, it was something I found very fulfilling. It was very uh, it was just amazing to stand up in federal court and say, I represent the United States of America. And to really go after some of these huge shelters where it's like, you know, my daddy pays taxes. Like, all the normal people pay taxes. Right. Like, you can too. You can pay your fair share. Um, so I found that to be very fulfilling work. Yeah. What was that like? I can imagine um, as a young woman, there weren't a lot of... Um, other women on the the team with you or yeah there, um, there were not a ton of um women in tax in particular mm -hmm. um and one of the things i think gender discrimination shows up or presents as age stuff in a lot of senses okay. there's been a lot of points in my career where people will talk about me being too young and they wouldn't say that to a man of the same age I'm sure many of our listeners have experienced comments like that that seem small but are rooted in paternalism. So my very first deposition when I was at DOJ, the tax um, payer, or not taxpayer in this case, that was showing up for his deposition, flew his private plane <laughs> course, to this deposition and walks in with his attorney, and the first words out of his mouth are, what are you, 12? And no, have a seat, please, sir. But at the end of that case, he ended up paying, you know, over $8 million in back taxes and penalties. And so wow. I felt very vindicated, <laughs> right. you know, and it's something where I have frequently like find your vindication and actual results instead of engaging in um, the back and forth. But it, you know, I got a lot of that that was wrapped up in youth Yeah. Um, or you must be too young. Adair's successful career in tax was spurred by looking for new ways to solve problems, something that everyone can seek to do in their everyday lives. Adair was doing things that she never imagined herself doing. She originally thought that she would be a teacher, but now she was working on high-level cases in Washington, D.C. 
This just shows that it's truly okay to not have a set path. As much as I consider myself a planner, I have never had a career plan. And I think part of that is when you ask someone like, where can you see yourself in 20 years? I don't know. There's like so many different places I could see myself in 20 years. I don't have like something that's like, this is what I have to work toward. And so what I have had the freedom to do and have really loved is saying like, this is a problem I see right now. I see a way to fix it and I want to go tackle it. Um, So, you know, tax shelters was that for me. She did not want to stop there, though. Adair came back home to South Carolina because she found it hard to deal with the complexities of family life while living in the big city of D.C. Upon returning to South Carolina, she co-founded Charleston Legal Access with Sally Newman, one of her mentors. This brings up the topic of sliding scale services. An example of sliding scale services would be a hospital offering a low-income or uninsured patient medicine at market value because they cannot afford it. First in South Carolina and one of the first in the southern part of the country to use this for legal services, the goal is to grow wealth, particularly in minority communities that do not have access to capital. Not everyone can afford to meet with a lawyer, but many don't qualify for free legal aid. It was an idea of Sally Newman, the late Sally Newman, who's an incredible woman. And the problem that we were solving is this gap in in legal representation between extreme poverty and a lot of wealth. So she and I both had similar kind of background stories. We grew up rural. She grew up in rural Montana. um, And our families had no access to legal representation. They were blue-collar workers, so they don't qualify for free legal aid. I mean, free legal aid, you basically, if you make more than minimum wage, you don't qualify. So the, you don't qualify for free legal aid, but also paying a lawyer, you know, 300 bucks an hour is just <laughs> not in the budget right. for anything. And so she came to me one day and she was like, let's represent people like our dads, people like we went to high school with. They deserve representation. And so we put together a plan to do it. We launched Charleston Legal Access, which is still doing incredible things today. It's one of the honors of my life to have, have built that up with her. Um, But the idea there was we are going to represent these people that don't qualify for legal aid but can't afford a private lawyer. So we did what's called sliding scale services. We discussed her most impactful case while she was at Charleston Legal Access. This example just highlights how many don't always consider the snowball effect. Legal counsel can shift the balance of power in many situations, and one legal consultation could prevent a lot of future problems. I would say it was definitely at at CLA. I had a lot of big money cases at DOJ worth millions or hundreds of millions, but the impact on lives and generations at CLA would be would definitely be it. And there was a car repair shop that was holding uh, a woman's car that she needed to get to work. We don't have public transportation in this state, so not having a car to get to work is hard. They were holding it, trying to uh, basically extort money out of her to like get her car back. And she was in a position where because she was having trouble getting to work, she was about to lose her job, which is her health care for a family of four. You suddenly, you don't have health care. You don't have um, this family that is, you know, barely making it, but making it fine. They then become homeless. Then what happens to these children over time? Like their outcomes change dramatically. And just having this intervention at this one point 
Um, and as soon as an attorney was involved, and we found this a number of times, there's such mm-hmm. a balance of power in our society, yes. such a complete imbalance of power. And as soon as an attorney is involved, magically give her a car back. Right. Um, but having these types of services really prevents kind of cascades of, of evil and falling into these other social nets. And that's one thing I think our society at large does not understand the value of legal services. Um, we understand the value of food banks and of transitional home homes and all of those things. But, you know, with 30 minutes of legal services, I can prevent the need for a transitional home and right. for a food bank and for all of those things. Um, and so it was one of my goals in that position is to really help explain to a broader society why these services are so important and how much bang for your buck you can get in by offering people access to a lawyer. Thank you so much for, for sharing that perspective because there it's so difficult for people to look upstream um, and and target those imbalances of power and and legal services is a huge one across even like for small business owners for the criminal justice system it's just you know people don't have equal access to to those types of services and um, from a generational wealth and livelihood and upward mobility perspective to your point, like just the simplest contract review can keep someone from getting completely screwed over and losing everything. And then the cascading effect that happens beyond that. Um, I just hope that like every, I wish that everyone would operate like that for the good of society. (laughs) Yeah. And it was really shocking to me, the number of clients who, when they found these, they were right. They, you know, they were being wronged by someone. Right. And that other person essentially said to them, what are you going to do about it? And that lack of access to an attorney emboldened bad actors to really take advantage of people because they know you don't have the power to um, take any action or response to how I'm about to screw you. <laughs> We still have so much more to talk about. We'll discuss more after a short break. Adair is perhaps most well-known for her election campaign in 2020, running against Joe Wilson for a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. Though she did not win, she still had a positive experience that inspired her to take her legal career even further. Running for Congress seemed like a huge idea at first, but her husband encouraged her to take the chance. Rather than being upset at how things currently were, she ran to be the change that she wished to see in her community. So talk a little bit about your run for Congress. I mean, no big deal. Just, um, you know, ran an amazing campaign. That's when I first met you. I hosted a fundraiser and I was just like, I couldn't believe it was like a a dare is coming to my house and had this whole house full of like amazing strong women. And there was so much momentum and energy. So talk about what made you decide to run and, you know, what impact that's had on you now. Um, This was a position of power where one call from a a congresswoman or congressman can change so much. And I felt like my congressman was um, not using that power to help my community. Mm -hmm. And I had referred a number of people to his office for things he should have been able to help with, like veterans benefits and whatnot. Um, And there 
wasn't always like a legal hook way I could help as an attorney, but uh, what they needed was to have the congressman's office call a federal agency, right? right? And it wasn't happening, and people were being ignored, and I was really frustrated about it. Again, I get frustration and leads to like career changes in my <laughs> life. So I was really frustrated about it. And my husband was like, you know, you could just run. And I was like, well, I don't really. Yeah. And so, you know, I knew it was going to be really hard, but I intended to win. And I had a, a plan built out um, in our constituent services office for building, again, minority wealth. We wanted to do like smarty, minority small business section focus and some veteran stuff focused and um I just really wanted to tackle those problems, and the way, the way to do that was to run for Congress. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I ran. You did it. <laughs> I don't regret it for a second, even with the outcome. And part of that is the people that it brought into my life. I still think my senior team—I call them the dream team—are some of the most important people in my life now. Um, but the community, like the people I met on the trail that I'm still connected with and connect to each other. There's so many people working for good, but a lot of it's siloed. Right. And it did provide me a platform to connect some of these awesome people to each other so they could get benefits from each other. And that uh, was one of the most rewarding parts about that. Yeah. And I think it's also so important for women to see women running successful campaigns. Um, to see that it's worth it and be able to identify with that. And, you know, we just have to take those risks and go for it, um, put ourselves out there so that young women can, can see that happening, that it is an option to do it. And you can just make a decision, hey, I'm going to run for this office and um, make change, and it's possible. It is. And one of the most affirming parts of the campaign was the way that the uh, female community like stepped up behind me. Our our campaign slogan was "Ma'am Up," <laughs> and um, which I loved. And women really stepped up for me in a big way. And I have two daughters, and for them to see that was also amazing. Mm-hmm. And to have my youngest daughter she was in kindergarten at the time saying like well I could be president yes you could (laughs) you know right um that it was totally normal for a woman to take on these types of roles and for a husband to be 100,000 percent supportive in doing it um that I feel like is a gift to my daughters and something we need to give all of our all of our girls as they grow up She recently began work on a new firm, Burroughs Bryant, with her friend Chris Bryant. She took time to rest after the election and campaign, something we all need to do, and that's when the idea came to her. She felt like small businesses in South Carolina were priced out of the legal aid that was offered by larger firms throughout the country. Again, she wanted to make legal counsel more accessible in the state. Burroughs Bryant believes that if you are working to make South Carolina better, they want to represent you as your lawyers. They also made this business for profit rather than taking the traditional nonprofit route. This way, they could take on the work they wanted to take on and offer prices on a sliding scale service similar to Charleston Legal Access. Chris's and I's stories go back to, I guess, 2015 at the federal courthouse. He and I worked uh, together under a federal district judge. Our judge had the Roof trial at the time, the trial of Dylan Roof, and Chris and I worked that case together, wow. which as you might imagine, is quite the bonding experience. Right. 
and and he's an African American man, and so working that case with him and and learning from him a lot um, about things in our state through that was life changing for me. Um, but Chris and I are just we work great together, and he was in D.C. Um, when I finished the campaign. He was doing political law at a big firm in D.C. I was trying to figure out what was next after the election because um, I had intended to win. <laughs> so it was the first time in my life I didn't know what was next. I have to make a little plug here for like taking time. It's something I'd never done in my life before. I always ended a job on Friday, started the next one on Monday, never even took a week in between. And I had a solid two and a half months where I did no professional work. And I slept mm -hmm. and like <laughs> learned what it was like to be well-rested as an adult, which was um, eye-opening, wow. you know? And I, I read books and I learned to meditate and I hung out with my kids and it was just an incredible time for me. Our kind of view of our firm is if you're working to make South Carolina better, we're your lawyers. Yeah. So if you're a nonprofit working on any range of issues, we can help you with IRS compliance. We can help you with general outside counsel stuff like contract review, policies, employment stuff. Um, if you're a small business, we can do those same things for you. We can help you form the business, get an LLC agreement between all of your partners or whatever you need. Mm -hmm. um, and so some of my favorite work is, uh, you know, clients who their number one goal is to um, pay their employees living wages and to right. set up a business where they can grow wealth in their community. Um, and and we do election and political law. And so uh, we're doing a lot of work on redistricting right now as, mm -hmm. as an example. And so it's just been beautiful. It is, it's a way to do work that we care about and the freedom to do the work we care about, which I think is what I enjoy most about it. Uh, when you're in government or the nonprofit sector where I've spent the entirety of my career, one of those two sectors, there are always limitations on cases you can take and things you can do. And, you know, if you're in a C3, you can't be political. Right. And so one of one of the reasons we decided to, to do this as kind of a for-profit firm is because we can do whatever we want. Right, right. <laughs> um, there's, there's no limitations. If we want to be political, we can be political. If we... Um, want to charge a nonprofit half the rate that would normally be charged, then we can do that because right. it's our business. We can do what we want. So um, he and I are very mission aligned in what we see for South Carolina. And this is our way to really help people that are doing great things in the state. And I think it's a problem, frankly, the legal community created um, historically. I mean, there was a time in our country where uh, corporations viewed themselves as having multiple constituencies. They had their shareholders, but they also had their employees and their communities and their customers, and they had these different constituencies. And in the legal field, um, basically what happened in corporate law really over the 80s and my lifetime is we have pushed corporate law to the point where there's no legal obligation to anyone except our shareholders. Mm -hmm. And your only obligation is, is to make a profit. And if you, you benefit any other area at the expense of making a profit, then we've created 
a, a lawsuit. And yeah. <laughs> and so that we went terribly wrong there. Right. And and so now their states are fixing it where you can have public benefit corporations, mm-hmm. where you can have a stated purpose other than profit. Right. Um, if you want to have that in and in small businesses where you don't have shareholders, where you have just small businesses, you can do that anyway. And we see a number of people of doing that mm-hmm. who um, who do informal sliding scale stuff for their communities so people can afford their services, who give back and time and money in major ways to their communities and helping them uh, do that and take some of the legal compliance and worries off their plate is uh, really, really fun for us because it's a good, it's a great way to engage in your community. There's not just one way. Adair has a lot of goals still ahead of her that she wants to meet but she stressed the importance of taking time to yourself to replenish your energy and motivation. Self-care is a common theme in most of the discussions we have had on this podcast. Chris and I are um, building, you know, this business and I am very excited about it. I love our clients. We have a number of nonprofit clients and small business clients. What we encourage our clients to do is when you can support minority businesses through your own work, like do it. And, um, so yeah, it's really fun. I'm staying engaged in politics on on the um, on the side. I think that's really important. Raising my family and 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 living life. It's looking for the the next uh, opportunities to really bring change to the state because I am hopeful. That's so inspiring um, to hear. I think it's easy to get dredged down in the day to day. You know, especially when you just feel like you're getting beat down from every single angle. Um, it's it's enlightening and inspiring to be able to talk with other people that are trying to change things and help and know you're not alone and know there's a whole community out there that you can, you know, use for support. Yeah. I think everyone needs that. It's so crucial for your own mental health and to not get burnt out, um, or dejected. And I have those communities and some of them are here in the state. Some of them, the Truman Scholar community has been incredible for me and changed my life. And, um, you know, there's always people I can call or text when I need a little, yeah, <laughs> a little inspiration <laughs> and uplifting. Adair is a very accessible person, and she sets a great example as a leader. She wants to surround herself with other people who she believes are working for the greater good of the state. We thank her so much for sharing her story with us and helping to inspire change in our community. If ever I can be of help, reach out. I feel like some things... Um, sometimes people feel intimidated about reaching out and I try to encourage, especially young people too, just do it. There are many times I now look back on my life where someone that could have been a great mentor offered, um, to, to go to lunch or something. And, and I was, I was like, well, they're too busy. They don't really mean it. Um, and I regret those Mm -hmm. every time I did it. And so, uh, reach out if I can be of helpful on anything, Chris. Like, we are very open to that. Thank you for tuning in to hear Adair's story. Remember that you, too, are a badass and capable of getting shit done in your community. If you are interested in learning more about our community, Femex Columbia, you can check out our website or follow us on social media. Thank you to our sponsors for helping make this podcast possible. And make sure to subscribe and tune into future episodes with more badass women from South Carolina. 
Once again, I'm Nell, and thank you for listening to Venturing Voices.